Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Uh, We're going to talk about another Timbers loss. So uh, it's going to be some similarities, it seems like, to the last few weeks, isn't it, Richard? This one just feels heavy. I don't think heavy. it's because the result. I think the San Jose one felt heavy, too. I don't know. There's just like, I don't know. There's just like a new weight to this, maybe because it feels like nothing is exactly moving forward. If anything, things are just circular that we've been here before. San Jose felt like a new place. The galaxy felt like a new place. <laughs> All of these things, even though they were bad situations, they felt like a new place. Saturday's game was better than San Jose, but it just feels like we've been here before and it feels like we're talking about the same things. Yep. Um, well, I think I, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think there is, of course, some some differences to this game. I, I mean, I, I think we'll get into it, but the contra- <laughs> this was definitely the most controversial game yes, that the Timbers have that played is in. definitely different. Uh, and and I, I think the players, the Geo, uh, the organization, definitely feels like they were robbed of potentially getting finally breaking that losing streak. Um, in terms of the result, the Timbers lost 2-1 to one to FC Dallas. You didn't want me to predict that result I, I think you tried to talk me out of it but i just think I, it's not a very look it, it's obviously the correct one it's just it's also just like it's par yeah it's par but, but i was par was right but i was right uh you predicted the timbers allow fewer than two goals and that was wrong that was wrong that was clo- close but not <laughs> close, but, close not. but not close in some ways um but i think we touched on it so let's just, let's just start here are you happier with the performance uh in that the timbers you know, showed fight in the second half. They they were in a position to potentially tie um, if calls had gone their way. Or, or are you more just disappointed with fifth loss in the row, uh, fifth loss in a row coming out of the game? If I were looking at this from a coach's point of view, I would unfortunately have to look at this as a process. The, after San Jose, the team is in a certain place. They're not just going to snap out of it. You've got to build back from that. And in that respect, I did think that Saturday represented a good point of progress. The formation, you went back to the 5-3-2. The team looked solid, at least in that formation. But perhaps more important, I thought the effort was much improved. Even in the first half when the team didn't look that good, there still wasn't the sense like you had in the first half against San Jose of, oh my God, what's going on here? What are these guys doing? They were making mistakes, but a lot of the mistakes I thought were just from effort at least. 
and the times that they were looking bad, they were making Dallas work for it more than they made San Jose work for it. In that way, I thought the loss was a significant step forward, but kind of to circle back on the way I opened the show in my first response to you, there's this kind of fatigue that is setting in of being in the same place too long, of talking about the same things for too long, of in the context of the show, having to be critical or scrutinize the same things over and over again. And you and I aren't per- people that are supposed to have solutions for this, but just in terms of, of how we're trying to live in or describe this season, we need another moment to happen because this is just feeling like we are stuck in the same waiting room and never being called in for our appointment. <laughs> I mean, I, I think... <sighs> Yeah, I, I think the Timbers showed uh, what they showed in this game was fight, and that's something I don't think we've seen in the way they showed in this game this entire season. So I think that was really promising. That when they went down, they tried to come back. They didn't collapse. They didn't concede goals in quick succession. So that mentality element, I, I think, was really good. I think the performance was clearly better than San Jose, although I wouldn't say it was a great performance by any means. It just it was after San Jose, there was clearly a response going on in this game. But yeah, I think the problem is that it's five losses in a row. And I don't know how the team, the team responds from this. I mean, it was so important for them to respond, not just with a good performance, but with a result. And this kind of loss, having yet another loss, having to come back and have another week of talking about how do we get out of this uh, bad spell can be really demoralizing. So I, I, I would be a little bit concerned, and I am a little bit concerned, sort of what the response is going to look like after this. Is, it, is the team going to say, we moved in the right direction, the mentality in that game was good, we've turned a corner, and we, we can build on this? Or is it going to be so demoralizing that they kind of fall back like they did after the LA Galaxy game and, and then the performance into San Jose? Yeah, that, that would obviously be a worst-case scenario at this yeah. point, going back <laughs> to that space. My general feeling from one day around the team, talking to some people, just kind of or seeing just the patterns of behaviors from the players after seeing, you know, being around them for as long as I have been, is that I think they feel that this weekend's performance wasn't great. But it puts them within this kind of margin to where they they can at least be competitive now. They're going to if they play like they did this weekend, they're not gonna they're not gonna win. A little bit of an improvement puts them in a better place. But they're at least in a place where they can start catching teams on their bad days, taking advantage of other teams' mistakes, uh, putting themselves in a situation where they go into every game with the expectation that something can happen. And I don't think you could say that about the performances they had in San Jose or Cincinnati in particular. The game that we saw on Saturday, Dallas, we saw they're not the best team in the league. They're a good team, though. And there's a reason why they were able to do the things that they did in the first half. Part of it is that the Timbers weren't executing the way they should have. But it's, it's no shame to lose 2-1 to that Dallas team. And the performance that the Timbers gave on Saturday, as much as it wasn't a good performance, in my opinion, or wasn't up to the standard they should set for themselves, it's going to catch some teams on some days. But that's the problem. The way we're talking about the team right now, after five straight losses, is like this never-ending qualifier at this point. Well, they're going to catch some teams on some days. It's not the standard. Standard has to be you should be able to compete all the time, have an expectation of winning games all the time, even if that doesn't happen. Do we think the Timbers are there yet? I don't know, Jamie. I, I, I don't get the feeling they're there yet, but I do feel they're a lot closer after this weekend. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think that they're not not there that not there yet, certainly, because just look at the results. I, I mean, it's tough. They're on the road. They, they, it was a tough game. And let's get a little bit into 
going through the game, but yeah, they're not where they want to be. And, and if sort of the feeling right now is you can catch a team on a bad day, that's absolutely not where this team's expectations should be. And, and it's I, the team, I think, still believes that there is still some belief there that this is not going to just be a lost season. But if that becomes the expectation four, five, six weeks from now, then clearly this season has fallen apart completely. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at the first half, though, let, let's kind of look at these in two separate halves because I, I, I think there was clearly different things going on. The Timbers conceded the opening goal in the ninth minute. Portland has conceded first in six out of six games and, and within the first 16 minutes in five out of six games. To be fair, that opening goal was a little bit of a fluke. It, it sort of bounced off Diego Chara yeah. um, and, and straight to a Dallas player that scored. But I guess just to start, I mean, how would you evaluate Portland's performance in the first half? Not great. I didn't think it was bad by any means, and it was enough to where they could build off of it in the second half. But even if you put that goal aside, it, when that goal happened, I just thought to myself this cliche that I keep using when goals like that happen. It's like, well, that's why no team has ever gone through a season without giving up a goal. You have the best defense ever that doesn't make mistakes. And at some point, you're going to put a ball off of uh, – you're going to see a defender or a midfielder try to help. You're going to have a ball go off their knee behind the defense, and randomness will happen. So – that goal, I wasn't worried about at all. I thought the response was decent, but we saw Jesus Ferreira have another chance from just inside the box that he pushed uh, wide of the left post. We saw Pablo Aranguiz walk, uh, run onto a back heel from Julio Cascande and put it well uh, well into the supporter section. Two or three other chances. I don't think it was a good defensive half. I thought it was better than this half in San Jose, but only because Dallas is a better team. I thought they were still giving up a lot of chances. I, I thought that the back line just isn't quite there yet as far as their cohesion, their execution, how they're playing off one another, still not being protected very much. Uh, but I think this is probably where like the 5-3-2 helped. There just didn't seem to be this flood. There seemed to be this like little ability to at least control some things. But even then, when they were able to kind of control play and start to get the ball out of their own end, the technical quality of the team in the first half just wasn't there. Passes behind players, passes being popped up that should have been defeat, touches that end up being popped up when you want to turn on the ball and get away from a defender. It seemed like almost every time they were trying to string together a spell of play, something just technically would fail. And it's almost encouraging that that was something because you know that's not going to be there every day. You know players like Sebastian Blanco have a certain level of technical quality. Same thing for Diego Chara. But over that first 45 minutes, they couldn't string together three touches without something bad happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you that you know Blanco and Chara have that technical ability, but I think sloppiness on the ball has been a problem all season. Um, maybe not specifically with those players, but... I think that has been an issue. Turnovers in midfield, sloppiness on the sloppiness on the ball, the the organization of the back line, and what's going on there. And I, I think that was a problem in this half. Um, and so I, I think for me it was a bit of concern because it felt like a the, more of the same. Um, and I think the one zero scoreline was fair uh, because Dallas, even though that goal was sort of a fluke, Dallas had plenty of other chances that had they done a little bit better in those circumstances should have been able to potentially score. Um, but yeah, I, I just didn't think the defense or, or what how the Timbers were able to take care of the ball was good enough. No. Um, and I, I think that's what kind of sunk them in the first half. I mean, you say more of the same. I'm going to disagree with you there. One of the consistent team, themes throughout the year has been teams being able to get a lot of um, have a lot of success by exploiting the Timbers wide. Dallas, you saw on their right side, possession play, Reggie Cannon getting forward, 
combining with Michael Barrios, having somebody like Pomacal or Aranguis come over and try to get numbers on that side. And I thought the left side of defense held up well there. On the other side, they were playing more direct. They were taking advantage of Jorge Moreira, pressing up higher in the defensive phase, trying to attack that space to the right of Larry Smabiala. And quite frankly, I thought a couple of times Larry Smabiala just got into foot races that you don't want Larry Smabiala to be in. There was a, at the 20-minute mark or so, they switched Michael Barrios over to that side. I'm like, oh my gosh, here's the fastest guy in the league going against an isolated Larry Smabiala. This is not going to be good. And I think we saw one time where a technical problem from Larry Smabiala created a sequence where they were able to play the ball back to Jesus Ferreira, who had an open chance from near the penalty spot that he just pushed wide. I think the way that Dallas was attacking was at least different. I think that the results were the same, but we weren't just seeing like teams overload on one side, break down a flank, fire a ball back to the middle. And the times that that did happen, I thought the Timbers dealt with it reasonably well. The bad part about that is that Okay, you've solved one problem. Maybe they aren't doing the same the opponents aren't doing the same things that they've been doing for 5 weeks, but they're still having a lot of success through other things. So, I don't it's to me it's still just this lack of confidence and not quite having the combinations figured out, but Jamie, I mean, what's your what's your working theory going into game 7 of the season because I feel like we we're almost obliged to come up with a new theory every week. I I mean, I, I think going into game 7 they're going to have to go with a similar formation. And, and I, I mean, you bringing in Mike's question, he, he said, yes, the effort improved. However, when players make mental mistakes, I think you talked about some of the technical mistakes that lead to goals or big chances. Why do those players keep playing? I, I think the problem is they have players on the field that are going to have to play. Uh, and I, I mean, you're not going to take Larry Smobiala off, even though they, he had some defensive mistakes in, in moments and it sort of, it led to some opportunities for Dallas because you absolutely don't have a better option um, than him. I, I mean, sort of as a center back, I, I can't think of the Timbers. He's the Timbers, I think, still best center back right now. So, I, I mean, you look at that, or same with Julio Cascante. If you're going with the five-three-two and you don't believe that Dielna can do it, and we haven't seen we haven't seen anything when he's actually been in the game to show that he can, um, Julio Cascante has to be in there. Uh, so I, I don't know what they can do in terms of lineup moves. I think they have to hope that the players, uh, I mean, of course, unless they start looking at some of the players at the T2 level, um, but uh, I think they have to hope that the 5-3-2 is at least a, a more solid formation for them right now and, and that these players that are making uh, sort of technical mistakes or, or the have, you have the sloppiness on the ball or these sort of problems that are happening find a way to solve themselves yeah i we should talk about larry's a little bit more because he was obviously part of the second goal too where uh, another situation where a ball gets fired into the six but i thought the timbers had this reasonably covered they have larry's mabiala front side of front side of the runner he's there to make a play they had somebody on the back side of the runner too morera unfortunately larry's when trying to play it ended up with a great shot on goal (laughs) that jeff atanella had to save and then morera kind of in desperation commits that penalty kick uh th- there were a couple of moments here where larice in this game a couple moments in the game where he didn't look good yeah and i think part of that is because of the scheme 
they were leaving him isolated, letting direct play go to his right, getting into foot races. And part of it is I don't think Larry Smabiel has played to his standards to this point of the season. I, I actually don't think there's much debate about that. That's why we're actually talking about this. I mean, the question is whether you can conceive of a version of this Timbers team or this Timbers defense that is going to get the team to where they want to be that doesn't have Larry Smabiela. Do you think that a Julio Cascante, Bill Tuiloma combination can get the Timbers no. to where they need to be? I mean, I think there could be debate about that, but I tend to agree with you right now. And yeah, I'm, right now, for and sure. And I'm clearly Julio Cascante's biggest fan of Portland. <laughs> this has been established. Do you think a Modu Jadama, Bill Tuiloma combination would work? I mean, I think it could work, but is it going to get the Timbers to where they, they really want to be? No. I think that's where you have to bet on... You have to bet on the potential of Luis Malbiala coming back to himself. And I think it's a very different debate than when you have a debate about Diego Valeri, for example. Valeri wasn't in this weekend because of ankle, ankle issues. We saw him at the end of the game come in. I thought he looked decent. But there is going to be an ongoing debate. What, if Diego Valeri continues to play at this level, what is his role in the team? Well, you can side Sebastian Blanco in there. Uh, I think that it's still a good point. Well, is this team going to get to where it needs to be if Blanco and Valeri aren't firing? But you can conceive of a team that has Blanco, maybe Marvin Luria, or um, Andy Polo, Tomas Konechny, whoever. Maybe a new signing comes in. But you can conceive of a team that at least can try to form an attack. And that attack might work. It's very difficult to conceive of a defense that'll work that doesn't have Larry Smaviala. So I guess I tend to agree with you that, for better or worse, in defense... Even with the formation right now, with the three center backs that they have, I think the Timbers got to roll with what they got. Yeah, I, I think unless they make a move, um, that this is what they got defensively. And you know, in terms of moves, all we've heard really about it is a potential forward signing, which we will touch on a little bit later. But mm-hmm. um, unless they make a move there, this is what they got. Uh, you mentioned Larry, so I'm just going to bring this in now because we had a lot of questions. Um, now, here's a question from Nick, but a bunch of people asked us about this. Um, Nick says, assuming Larry is healthy, do you start him next week in Columbus, or, or do you have him on the bench again? Uh, I can see the argument for both. Obviously, I would, obviously, I have gone back and forth on this show with Diego Valeri. I think last week's show was a good example, or two weeks ago, ahead of San Jose, where I was kind of saying, Diego Valeri needs to play better. They need to, they, the transition game has to be better. The possession game has to be better. And then by the end of the show, I'm saying, Diego Valeri is going to have a goal and assist this weekend. I think that's kind of where you are. To a certain extent, you still have to keep hoping that the Diego Valeri that every fan knows and every fan seems to love is going to come back. And you have to keep giving him opportunities to do that. And, you know, having only played, what, 20 minutes, 15 minutes this weekend in Dallas, maybe going to Columbus is a good chance to do that. But I am at the point where I can see any decision being justifiable. If Giovanni Savarese in his press conference on Wednesday says... You know, this is my new plan. He's not going to say this. He's not going to be this. <laughs> this is my new plan. Uh, I'm going to have this person be the focal point of the attack, and Diego, we're going to look for other places to put him. Fine. If he came out and said, no, Diego Valeri is the core of what we want to try to do going forward, fine. I can see that too. It's just weird that so early in the season, we're, we're already at a place where this debate is reasonable. So, Jamie, I'll ask you, what would you do? <laughs> I mean, I think you gave. He gave Diego Valeri a rest, obviously. I, I mean, I, I guess he had a you know some sort of heel injury, um, but was clearly healthy enough to at least come off the bench. Uh, but he gave, gave him the opportunity to get that rest in, and, and so I sort of would go back to trying to put Valeri in the lineup in Columbus. I don't think we've gone to that this point yet where it, it makes sense for Gio to completely give up on Diego Valeri as a starter and, and only use him 
as a sub off the bench. I mean, Valeria has been so good for the Timbers in, in past years, and I think the Timbers are lacking in the attack right now. I, I think if you make that move, then there's a lot of questions to as to who go replaces Larry so that they, the Timbers can sort of have a functioning attack. I, I mean, Abobasi and Blanco were the only true attacking players in that starting lineup, and I, I thought the Timbers still created chances. But rolling out the same lineup that the Timbers had last week every game doesn't look like a lineup that's going to be all that prolific in the attack. So and That plays into this, too, that the team seems to, at this point, need to play the 5-3-2 until it can start building from it. But when you play the 5-3-2, there's, you can make the argument that there's not a place for Valeri because you need to have a solid midfield. midfield. Central midfield has been a problem so far this year. Blanco can certainly play there, but his more natural position is going to be in a more attacking role. And if you put him in an attacking role, it's either him and Valeri or him and Abobasi. I think Abobasi has been better than Valeri this year, and he certainly is a different type of player. He's somebody that you would want to at least offer an outlet, offer a targeting option, especially if you're going to cross the ball as many times as they did in the first half. I mean, I don't think we have time on the show, but the number of crosses <laughs> that Jorge Moreira is playing was, uh, was interesting. Either way, I think uh, almost any decision is justifiable, but decisions have to be made. You know, we're talking about the second half here, Jamie. Let's go to David's question. David asks, it seemed notable that the Timbers didn't collapse after the first FC Dallas goal and fought hard after their goal in the second half. A change of mentality, consequence of the defensive formation. I think the team just played better. Yeah, I think it was, I think mentality is sort of what it is. I, I, I think when you have a sort of collapse where you can see goals in, in quick succession like they have, that that is a mental thing. That is a letdown. That is a, a mental lapse there. Um, when you respond like the Timbers did, I, I think they're doing the exact opposite. They're taking, they're recognizing they're down and they're responding with fight. And I, I think that's a good thing. I, I think that's shown that this team hasn't given up, even though they're in the stretch that they haven't given up and they still believe that they can get a win, they can grind out uh, a result or, or fight back when they go down. So I think it was a real positive. That was the most positive thing for me in the game is just seeing that response in the second half because I just don't think we've seen anything like that this year so far. Um, but, I mean, of course, it's having fight after going down two goals is great. Going down two goals is not so great. Yeah, I think the biggest change of mentality was on Dallas's part. And we see it all the time. We saw it a little bit in the Thorns game too when they went up two goals and then Orlando started having a little bit more uh, success going forward. When you go up to, when you go up two goals, it's natural for your mindset to change because then two really bad things have to happen for the other <laughs> team to get back into it. Uh, I I guess the one thing I question about change of mentality is that I Maybe there was a little bit more aggression there. Maybe there was a little bit more, oh, we have nothing left to lose. But I, I didn't really question the team's mentality in the first half. I questioned their execution. And in the second half, I think cha- things only really started to change after the second goal went in. I don't think, I mean, no, I'll take that back. Because I did remember thinking the open moments of the second half. Oh, this is better. Oh, they're better on the ball. Oh, the touches are cleaner. Um, yeah, I, I guess I just, I'll just say I don't know about that. But I think it is notable that everything that the Timbers had success doing really happened once Dallas had their second goal. Um, let's talk about the biggest talking point, at least in the first couple hours after the game. I feel like <laughs> I feel like now people have got it out of their system and don't want to continue to think about uh, what the lead official did during that game on multiple occasions. Obviously, we're going to focus a lot on the video review instance in stoppage time where 
Hilaria Il Grajeda calls down to Marcos de Oliveira, says, hey, you got to look at something. He goes and looks at it and says, I don't know why you're wasting my time. That was, I'm not reversing that call. But even before then, Jeremy Abobasi taking a forearm to his back on a cross from Ryan. I believe it was Ryan Hollingshead. Yeah, at it the was. Focus on both of these things. And to be honest with you, the second that happened, I, I said out loud to the person I was watching the game with, that's a penalty. And both of these times I said, that's a penalty. So, Jamie, first, let's get that out of the way. To what extent do you agree with the, the non-calls? Yeah, I think both were penalties. Yeah. Uh, I think, I I I think that both were penalties. I think the Abobasi one is harder to see, and even on replay, it's maybe a little bit harder to see. And especially if you're trying to determine if he made only slight contact and it didn't really push Abobasi, it, it didn't really change the play in any way. I, I mean, I, I think that one's just a bit harder. And so even when that happened, I said that was a penalty, but. It was. It, I don't think there was the same sort of reaction for me as the second one, uh, which was Hollingshead's handball, <laughs> where his yeah. hand was clearly up and in a natural position. His hand clearly went up after I think Larry Smobiala headed the ball uh, towards him. I have absolutely no idea what the referee was thinking after going to video review, after looking at that on the monitor and saying, that is not a handball. I mean, the only thing I can think is he somehow thought it hit his like shoulder or chest and didn't actually hit the hand. Yeah. Because I, I, I it's inconceivable in me that he looked at that and said, "Yeah, his hand's in a natural position." Yeah. Be- because it doesn't matter if he intentionally did it or not. It matters if his hand is in a natural position. And I just, yeah, that that was a comically bad call in my opinion. For me, it's just the contrast with the day before. And I'm so sorry for people who follow me on Twitter. One, I'm sorry that you've made that decision <laughs> with your life. But secondly, I talked about it on on there. Friday night in Chicago, late in the game, Vancouver's up one to nothing. Daniel Henry goes to challenge for a shot, probably from like 16 yards out. He has his right arm out. It's out in the exact same way where his elbow is close to the body. But his forearm and his hand are elevated, sticking out from his body. Shot hits the hand. They go to review. Clear penalty. Chicago gets the equalizer. It finishes 1-1. This is almost the exact same situation. Not in the sense of how the defender was moving, because Hollingshead is kind of just standing there. Daniil Henry is trying to close ground on the shot. But it's the exact same thing. Shot goes to extended forearm, extended arm, and it hits it. I just don't understand how you can, how obviously it's different people looking at it, but a set of referees with a set of standards of how to interpret things can look at that. And not only that, the whole history of how we understand handballs and how that's evolved to this point and how the whole concept of making yourself bigger by putting your hands in a natural position. Heck, even natural positions, sometimes you see on a shot, a guy has his arms down, he's going out to contest it, but is a little bit away from the body. And the logic is you've made yourself bigger by using a part of your body that shouldn't be allowed to play the ball. So I thought this was very clear, but at the same time... As frustrating as it is, and I've gotten myself worked up explaining that, (laughs) as frustrating as it is, these things happen in a 34-game season, and it's just the more frustrating part is the timing within the Timbers campaign where it happened because a draw for that team would have felt so different than not getting any points. Um, But let's go to Andrew's question. Andrew asks us, which arm deserved a penalty call more the one to Jabo's back or the one that stopped the header I think yeah, I think it was the same arm I think it was Hollingshead's left arm in yeah, both cases seem like that huh <laughs> um, deserve the penalty it's interesting I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get philosophical about the word deserve right um, I think that the handball certainly was more of a penalty so in that sense it deserved more of a penalty but in terms of deserved I felt like the first one was a in kind of on a moral accountability level that was a an active act Whereas the other one was a passive act. 
Hollingshead put his arm into Jeremy Obobese the first time. He had been beaten. He was trying to do something, anything. The other time, he's just kind of like standing there. So I know I had to kind of like pervert the meaning of deserve in that one, but kind of in the cosmic sense of moral accountability and ethical obligation, I would say the first one. Well, I think from my description, I'd clearly say the second one. Um, Tim asks, how are referees evaluated? It seems like there should be a price for bad officiating. There absolutely is, but part of the rules for this is that that price doesn't get paid in the immediately immediate week that followed. It ends up being, I forget if the standard is three or four weeks. So the referees do get evaluated. They do get punished for this. The punishment is usually having to go to referee USL games, uh, but they aren't really public about that process. A couple of years ago, when they had Peter Walton operating the pro account on Twitter, or they had him at least had somebody putting his words on there, they would be a little bit more open about this stuff. But there's no union that is going to really be out there criticizing their own membership. They do do this in private, though. There are referee monitors at many games, they review the film, etc. And uh, yeah, I think uh, Marcos Delavera is probably going to at least get a, get an email with some questions in it. Uh, Marty asks, "Is it time to reassess VAR?" My answer is no. Well, I, yeah, I don't think I don't think having VAR is a negative. I mean, that call would have been missed either way. It wouldn't have changed anything. You hope that VAR would solve some of these problems. And clearly there are ways in which VAR can be better because I I really don't know how this occurred. Obviously, I think one of the things that not everyone quite understands is the referee on the field ultimately has the decision. So even if the referee, the VAR, uh, VAR referee in his ear is saying, I think you should look at this or I think this or that, we don't we we don't know what, exactly what's being said. That's not something that's made public to the media. Um, the referee can look go look at the video and say, "No, I disagree with you." And it comes down to the referee on the field. So clearly, there's ways it can be better. I don't think the MLS at all should get rid of VAR um, because it's not going to. Uh, it's only going to make things worse to not have it. Uh, but yeah, um, I wish that the referees were more public about sort of when they do things wrong or when things happen. There was more of a accountability out there. Like in the NBA. Although yeah. that comes from the league office. It doesn't come from the uh, the referees association. And part, I mean, part of what's weird here is that pro and MLS's relationship is not the same as other leagues. So, uh, it, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, to me, obviously people blame VAR all the time. You see it. You see it in analysis. You see it on social media. I mean, blaming VAR for this would be like blaming Toyota when I crash my car. Like I crashed the car. It wasn't the car's problem. The referees didn't uh, didn't use the VAR system appropriately. Blame the referees. It's not about VAR. It's not about VAR anymore. It is me not being able to drive. Uh, you gotta. You, <laughs> it's definitely a craftsman and tool situation here. Jamie, let's talk about where the team actually is now. Let's go to some questions. The Timbers have lost five in a row for the first time in seven seasons. Andrew asks, "Will we ever win a game again?" <laughs> yes. I don't feel like you're taking this question seriously. <laughs> Someday? I don't know when, though. Um, I, I, right now, I, I think, you know, you look at things on paper and things can change any week. I mean, the Timbers could potentially win this weekend, next weekend. They could totally turn things around. I, I don't have a crystal ball. But I, I think the best opportunity for them to get a win before these 12 games are over at this point, if that's going to happen, is, is either against Vancouver or Salt Lake. So they've got... Columbus, Toronto, Salt Lake, Vancouver. Yes. I think the Timbers are going to be underdogs in every one of those games. Underdogs win all the time. I think it's it's probable that the Timbers will win one of those games. 
I don't know why. I don't know how. But that's just how these things work. The Timbers might go into each of those games with like a 30% chance of winning. And if that's the case, then, you know, like a baseball hitter that comes to the plate with a 300 average, he'll eventually get a hit. But predicting when that person's going to get a hit is a pretty much a fool's errand. And until the Timbers can play better, I think we just have to approach this kind of like they'll probably get a win. It'll probably be in the next four or five games. But there's no way I can tell you when that win is going to happen. So, Andrew, I know that's not going to make you feel better. It shouldn't make anybody feel better. But there's a reason why even the worst teams ever win games in various places. Chizops asks, five losses in a row. What is it going to take to get Eric Williamson some playing time? The guy is going to leave us. Yeah, and I think that's a feeling about, you know, I mean, he mentioned Eric Williamson. I think I've heard that about other T2 players as well. Um, just the idea of what's it going to take to get X T2 player uh, some minutes on the first team. I'm glad I'm hearing about Mo Jadama now because to <laughs> me, I mean, him and Eric have been the best players, but it's nice that Mo's getting some attention. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it's going to take. I mean, it's... I think this these this is really hard from our perspective to sort of predict because Savarese is never going to tell us his lineup decisions ahead of the game, and it, this is sort of based on things going on in practice. Um, and there's limited, at least for me, uh, limited practice that I can see any week. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe one open practice a week, and then limited 15 minutes on on the other days. Uh, I certainly would like, especially if the season keeps going this direction, you would think that they're going to have to start giving T2 players more opportunities if at some point it's clear that the players here are just knocking the job done and that's not going to change. But I'm not sure when that's going to happen. Eric's got an interesting reality because he didn't spend the last half of last season with the team. So you can definitely see any team approaching this kind of like... Let's get you in the system. Let's have three months of consistent play. Let's have four months of consistent play. We've got other guys. Eric's a central midfielder. He plays in number 10 for T2, but he is he projects himself or sees himself as an as a more of an 8 than a 10. It's just that T2, they've had Renzo Sembrano, they've had Andre Lewis last year, they've had Todd Wharton this year. He goes into that 10 role. And frankly, at the beginning of last year for T2, he was an 8 until he moved up there. But you you take that identity and you move that onto the Timbers team. Okay. You've got Christian Paredes, who maybe needs more time, or is the next person in line to get more time, given that Davi Guzman now is in a struggle to get back on the field. You've got Russo Flores, who none of us think that Russo is going to make an all-star team anytime soon, but also when you watch the game on Saturday, it's like, okay, he can plug a hole. You've got Renzo Sambrano. Renzo might be ahead of the line as far as, as far as T2 players who are next in this list of players who are going to play in midfield. So I... I, what, what is it going to take to get Eric Williamson some playing time? Like, that's a great question because he's playing great right now. But it might take going through these other options too, because none of these other guys, I think, deserve to be passed up either. All right, let's move forward. On um, since we've spent a lot of time talking about another loss, uh, the Timbers are heading to Columbus on Saturday, and they'll take on the crew at four thirty p.m. and they'll face Caleb Porter. They will. So interesting. <laughs> I mean. I was expecting this game to be defined by Caleb Porter, his narrative, his backstory facing the Timbers, but unfortunately, I think the Timbers situation overshadows that. What this does, though, the meaning of Caleb Porter is that it, for fans, for players, for everybody, it just adds a layer to this because as bad as this situation is, you don't want a former coach being part of it. Adding a former coach beating you to this, no matter what you think of Caleb Porter, um, Caleb Porter is very positively thought about in Portland. Rightly so. He delivered an MLS Cup. Him adding to that, him being the sixth the sixth coach in a row to beat this team, it just 
it's not so much about Caleb Porter. It's just a reminder that the team, the team's going in a certain direction. Yeah. That when a coach that was there puts a result up against you, you're reminded of where you aren't anymore. So this definitely adds a layer of intrigue to this game. Uh, what 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 are your feelings? Because uh, even though I lived in Portland the whole time, I wasn't the beat reporter for this team. I would drop into practice once a month. I'd go to all the games. I certainly had some kind of relationship with Caleb Porter, although it was a very superficial one. What do you think about this? Yeah, I, I mean, when I spoke with Caleb, he thought that this game, for him personally at least, wasn't going to bring up a lot of emotions just because it's going to be different sort of facing the Timbers in Columbus versus uh, in Portland. He He said that he thinks next year when he comes to Portland is going to be where it's sort of the emotions are going to happen. We'll see. We'll see if that's actually true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but well, because there's been a lot of talk. Sorry to interrupt you, but there's been a lot of talk over the last year about what people can infer from what Giovanni Savarese says or doesn't say to the media. My impression of Caleb was always uh, he was always very prepared with the point that he wanted to make to the media, <laughs> no matter the direction of the interview. To what extent would you agree with that? And if you do. What does that say about the message that Caleb gave you? Sure, but I, when I talked to him, it was back. It was a it was a wide ranging interview back in, in, in I think January. So I, I think it was a okay. little bit different. I, this isn't him this week saying this, and it, maybe it's changed his opinion going into this week. I haven't talked to him this week, uh, but I, I think there, there's going to be some emotions around this game. I, I think the other side of it is that Caleb does know a lot of these players really well, um, and from a scouting perspective, that helps. Uh, I, I think the other side of it is, like you said, there is sort of this comparison element. I mean, if the Timbers lose, I, I think it'd be really easy to compare the Caleb Porter year and start thinking back to that uh, and and then compare that to sort of the run the Timbers are currently on. I, I don't think that's anything. That's definitely not something the Timbers want to have happen at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think there are is added emotion. Uh, there's definitely added intrigue. And there's a level of Caleb has the opportunity to sort of figure out how he wants to tactically play against this team because he knows this team really well. It just gives him a little bit more of an advantage there, I think, as a coach. I have to admit, because of uh, Caleb Porter's connection to, I wouldn't say to the team, but to my career, because I did cover him for quite a bit of time. I've watched every crew game this year. It's one of the first games I watch. I guess part of it, too, is because they've played all their games in the Eastern time zone this year. So it's just they come up before the Timbers games do. Um, They're off to a great start um great results i wouldn't say it's necessarily overwhelming stylistically or even below the results i think you were telling me before the show they've only scored seven goals in six games is it or seven games uh but either way it's not like they're overwhelming people. seven goals in seven games a lot of these games are coming down to set pieces i believe they have three goals scored this year from central defenders on set pieces uh but i think to their credit they've played ahead for a large uh, portion of the season they have more than any team in this league this incredible patience to kind of just stay within what they're doing let things happen and when good things happen okay now we've got control over the game so i think it's been very interesting because the Caleb porter dogma that came with him from akron to portland which we know started to fade after a couple years and practical porter kind of won out in the end it's more practical than ever right now. Yeah. Uh, I think it's it's very intriguing to watch, but I don't I wouldn't necessarily call it exciting right now. Let me throw this question to you, Jamie. What do you think the Timbers have to do this weekend to get a result? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that if they put in a solid defensive performance and, and they can sort of find a way to shore up the back line a little bit, 
uh, given that Columbus has sort of struggled to be um, all that d- dangerous, especially dangerous in the attack, this could be an opportunity for the Timbers to. Uh, <laughs> I'm not, not going to guess clean sheets anymore because I mm. <laughs> I can't guess that again with the Timbers, but you know, concede not concede in the way they've been conceding, maybe. Um, so I think they have an opportunity there. Columbus is a very good defensive team so far based on the numbers. They've only conceded five goals in seven games. I I think that's going to be tough for the Timbers and their attack hasn't looked particularly good. Uh, I think it's going to be a tough game, but I do think this is going to be more about the Timbers figuring out how they can put in a solid performance themselves than, than really playing to what, what they need to do to beat Columbus. I want to say something about that Columbus defense because you're right. They've looked steady all year. The thing that impresses me about their defense is that there have been three central defenders that have looked very good all along. Jonathan Mensah, Josh Williams are starting right now. Gaston Saro got off to a good start to the season. They've lost Harrison Awful recently with a broken jaw. He's going to be out for a few weeks. They lost Milton Valenzuela before the season even started, their designated player at fullback. And they've had to fill those holes, and they've been fine. They've been really good defensively. This team plays... Like I used the word patient before, so I won't use it again, but they are so steady in how they go about things with Will Trapp and Artur in the middle, feeding it to Iguain, who still keeps as much command over the game as anybody. You've got Robinho starting on the left right now, Pedro Santos, who I think is really one of the better players at what he does in the league as far as being a wide person that can come in and be a creator, have an effect all across the width of the pitch. This is a team that has a lot of good players, and I think they get a little bit overshadowed because of where they are in the country. They got greatly overshadowed because of the story around this club last year. But this team has capable players at every position who are performing well right now, and I think they can beat any team in the league. Yeah, and you didn't even mention that uh, Giassi's artist scored 19 goals last year, Yep, and he has three so far this year. I mean, Columbus hasn't been great in the attack, but he's certainly proven that he can score in this league. So we'll get to our predictions later in the show, so we'll talk about this a little little bit more but let's talk about some things away from the timbers how long this will be away from the timbers depends on how much you want to believe mexican media where various outlets over the last couple weeks have been reporting on necaxa attacker brian fernandez potentially being linked with the portland timbers if you've been listening to the show over the last four months you should know that it takes a certain level of rumor to actually be discussed on the show we discussed a lot of rumors in january into february well these rumors have reached that level so jamie Tell us what your mentality right now, mentality, I'm asking this as if you're a coach. Tell, tell me, what's, what's the current mentality about the Brian Fernandez thing? I mean, the, the, the rumors seem legit. I, I, I mean, that they, these don't just seem like uh, off-base rumors that, that are coming out of nowhere. Um, we've seen it both in, in I, I think, the record out of Mexico. I think we also saw a, a CBS reporter reporting that this signing was done. I'm a little bit skeptical that the signing is done and dusted, especially since we heard 95% done back in January uh, mm-hmm. in association with um, a different player, and, and that clearly didn't happen. Uh, but I absolutely believe this is a player the Tippers are targeting at this point, given the reports. Um, and there is clearly a timeline if they are going to get this done uh, of May 7th when the primary transfer window closes. So for people that don't know about him, he's a 24-year-old Argentine who uh, previously played for Tigre in Argentina, was played for Mets in France for a little bit, or at least was on their books, to use the lingo of the sport. Also had some time in Chile, has been one of Mexico's most prolific scorers over the last year or so playing for Necaxa, Necaxa in Mexico. Uh, can play almost anywhere in the tack, has been predominantly a right wing of late also can play a forward. I think the thing that is important to me, or not important to me personally, but what stands out about these rumors is the timing of them. 
we got very clear a very clear description from Gavin Wilkinson in December as to what the timing of this would be. They're going to try. It might extend into summer. We've got a month left in this transfer window, uh, less than that, May 7th. You would expect there to be some rumor about the Timbers. If they have been looking for attacking talent for the last four months, you would expect towards the end of a transfer window, they would be close. Whether that means signing somebody in the next three weeks or having somebody ready to go in July, you would expect that to happen. The question is whether this is the typical kind of Latin American soccer reporting that's just trying to connect dots that only are faded on paper and not really there, or if this is real. Uh, He certainly seems to fit a lot of needs. I'd say the price tag that I'm seeing reported, which is, what, 2.4 times higher than the Timbers record signing fee, that seems a bit much. I think that would end up being like one of the top two or three transfer fees ever paid in, in MLS. At the same time, that's just that reporting. I mean, that's only one aspect of that reporting. So I don't know, but I think that I think if I had to guess, there would be even more rumors that are going to happen in the next couple of weeks, because like we said, the timing and the the need the team has and the profile the team has throughout the Latin American world, you would think that other people are going to be linking their strikers with uh, with the Timbers. Another question, I'll ask this to you. Over this last month, we've gone from at the beginning of the season where everybody seemed very focused on acquiring uh, the DP number nine, which was always going to be somebody who could always play on the wing. Now the debate has shifted to talking about defense, talking about midfield. We actually answered this question on the last show, so I'm kind of making you repeat it. Where do you think the Timbers would get the most bang for their buck right now with their investment? Yeah, I mean, I think that if they sign Brian Fernandez, that would make a really big difference immediately. And I don't know if it would solve all their problems. Um, I, I think, as you pointed out right now, I mean, you need Larry Smobiala performing better. You need the defense to, to sort of find a rhythm. Um, or, or else, I, you know, if whatever happens in the attack might not be enough. Um, but I still think this is the best use of Portland's resources. I think... If they also went out and signed a, a defender, I would not uh, be upset about that <laughs> before the end of the transfer window. But that, I, I'm just not sure if that's something that's going to happen. Um, I, I think if they're going to spend big money on DP, this seems like someone that fits the right profile and, and is going to make a difference now. Well, we've got a lot of thorns to talk about, so let's answer some final listener questions about the men's side of the club before we go forward. Uh, Let's talk about T2. This isn't a question. Jim just yells out with an exclamation point. T2 needs the love. They don't need anything from us. They're at the top of the Western Conference in USL with a 4-1-1 record. Uh, Obviously, that record speaks for itself, but like we've talked about on the show before, the progression that they seem to be making from last year when they when the team completely rebuilt their USL entity till now, uh, it's paying off in the field. one to nothing victory at Merlot Field this weekend over the Sacramento Republic. Paul asks, T2 used a 4-2-2, 4-4-2 in their last game. <laughs> Sacramento kind of had to play with a 4-2-2 for a while. Uh, Timbers used a kind of 4-4-2 in Dallas in the second half. Are we seeing a system approach change where T2 and Timbers stay in sync? No, but what do you think, <laughs> No, I don't think so. I, I think that uh, we've seen Sarasi be um, someone who's pragmatic and willing to change his formation based on the game state and, and the opponent. I, I think that's all we're seeing on the timber side, and I think the formation is going to continue to change. I don't think it's going to be primarily the four four two. This team still clearly has shown that it would like to play a four two three one as sort of the organizational approach, uh, but it's become more of a game-to-game uh, decision right now. So I, I don't think there's any sort of systematic change at this point. Ryan asks, going back to the Timbers, beat realistic prediction for the number of points the Timbers will have after their road trip. 
I don't. I think any number between zero and I don't know. Well, twelve even definitely not zero. Well, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I guess I don't think that's realistic because they have one. Oh yeah, that's right. It just feels <laughs> like zero, doesn't it? Um, look, to me, it's also it's realistic that there are seven games to go in this. Well, sorry, six six games six to go in this road trip. It, to me, it's realistic that something clicks and they win the last three games of this. It's not impossible at all with their talent. It's impossible from where we stand sit right now. But it's not. We've seen soccer teams do weirder things than that. So I I don't know. I don't know what a realistic number is, but yeah, I'm gonna pick six right now. Yeah, it's, which. Uh, would mean a win and two draws and three losses. Yeah, I was thinking six. I think that's somewhere between five and eight. I was where I was thinking of. I think that's plausible. I think their best opportunity, as I've said, to get a win is Salt Lake or Vancouver, who are neither of whom have looked all that good. But it could be, it, it could be two, it could be one. I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's been very bad. So it depends if they can turn a corner at all. It's just so hard to think in those terms because everything is so week to week right now that trying to think of things in terms of a twelve game block, it just seems so. It just seems so ahead of ourselves right now, and that's just where the Timbers are. It feels like whole world can change once they figure it out but they clearly haven't got it figured out yet now that's in contrast to the other first division team that's under the Merritt paulson umbrella portland thorns got off to pretty much the exact start they would have wanted two to nothing victory over orlando where they were clearly the best team in the first half and in the second half much like we were talking about with the dallas game thorns got up two nothing game changed but before that pretty much the game that Mark Parsons would have wanted. Jamie, of course, it was a road game for a Portland team, so you picked a two to one <laughs> two to one result. A little bit off. I picked a clean I predicted a clean sheet for the Thorns. Was I right? You were right. <laughs> My prediction was still pretty decent, but you 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 got you were right. You were right on the money there. I don't know. Two one win, it's just not decent. Two one score lines just if it's if it's not right, it's wrong completely. I'm never give no it, credit. Actually, I'm gonna give you give you credit for this two one prediction because you predicted the road team would win. So you, you Yeah. Picking picking a home team to win two one, I'm gonna pretend that never happened. <laughs> uh let, let's talk about this game. We talked about it a little bit. The Thorns win two to nothing with goals from Caitlin Ford and Tobin Heath. Both uh very interesting in their own way, both very Tobin Heath centric. <laughs> Tobin Heath with a back heel to set up for its close range finish towards the end of the first half and then at the beginning of the second half Tobin Heath with another Tobin Heath with another back heel pass play behind her as she's racing into the 6-yard box box stretches out her right leg hooks it back in the goal 2 to nothing is the result uh, you put some stats down on this sheet of paper so I'm going to read them like I'm Ron Burgundy Thorns outshoot Orlando 22 to 15 62 in terms of shots on target they outshot the Pride 15 to 5 in the first half alone so Jamie I've given my feelings what do you think about the Thorns' performance? Um, well, I just talking about Tobin Heath for one second. I, I mean, besides the fact that she's just incredible to watch, I, I did not give her as much credit when I first saw that goal. I, I thought, mm. "Wow, she just she just got a touch on that. Good job, Tobin." Heath. And then when you see that on replay and how how she clearly did exactly what she wanted to do, it, yeah. it's. That goal is amazing. I, I, I felt so... I, my first take at, at writing my game, right, I totally didn't give her enough credit. And then I looked back at the goal and I was like, oh my God, that was, that was a <laughs> great goal. Uh, wow. One goal of the week. One, she won player of the week. I think this was a better performance than Mark Parsons I could have expected. I, I, he was what? talking about chaos going into this game and expecting it just to be a little bit wild in game one. The Thorns looked like they were basically in midseason form. 
Um, and I think part of that is they have a lot of players that have to be in midseason form right now because they're going to be going off to the World Cup in a few weeks. Mm. Um, they looked ahead of schedule from what you would expect from a team on day one, and I thought it was a really, really impressive performance. They're not going to have a lot of these players in uh, a few weeks. Oh, boy, are we talking about that uh, already? But, Here we go. But for now, for the next two games, they'll have everyone, and... Yeah, I thought this was a really, really exciting performance. Yeah, I guess I'll just, I mean, obviously I'm going to disagree with you. I mean, this is the performance that he would have drawn up. I don't think it was unreasonable to expect this performance. Uh, I mean, I think that Orlando is a team that's in transition right now. I think people probably underestimated how much having a coach imported into this league right now is going to be an adjustment period. This is an incredibly competitive league, and Mark Skinner, with his team that needs to improve upon last year's non-playoff finish, gets to go against one of these teams that we have identified, along with Chicago and North Carolina, as these super talented teams in this league. It was it was a very difficult situation. I thought that Orlando, in the way that they played the ball and trying to play out of the back, playing the ball pretty slowly... I think they just played right into the Thorns' hands. But, you know, just the way that you saw Portland executing in the first half as far as their pressure and funneling play to certain places, and you'd see Celeste Bure or Lindsey Horan winning the ball, that's what they train. That's what teams train all the time. And it's very rare that other teams play right into your basic training plans, but it happened. Uh, you know, another thing that kind of went to plan, in addition to Tobin Heath being huge, in addition to the, the Thorns controlling the game, Kalen Ford, goal and assist, and that's remarkable not only because it went to plan, but we didn't see a goal from her last year. In fact, nobody has ever seen a goal from her in the NWSL. <laughs> uh, how important will it be to have production from Ford this year? Yeah, I mean, that was one of my, even though Tobin Heath's performance was, was very Tobin Heath-like. Uh, this was one thing I think was I was most excited about coming out of the game was Caitlin Ford's performance and, and just the way she was able to contribute in the attack. Because Mark Parsons talked so much about how exciting Caitlin Ford was, how um, how much he wanted to get her to Portland last year, and then she breaks her foot and um, was it broke? She had a foot surgery, whatever was the actual injury, um, and she misses the majority of the season. So. The Thorns already have one of the best attacks in the NWSL. If Caitlin Ford can also be a consistent contributor contributor there, I think that's huge for the Thorns. I mean, if they can add to an already really good attack, uh, I think that's going to make a big difference. So I, I think it was really exciting to see her right out the gate contributing like she did. Yeah, and I suppose this is why I didn't really panic so much when people talked about the lack of offseason additions. You got a full year from Caitlin Ford. I know it didn't look like it on Sunday, but you know, having a full year from Anna Maria Cernogorcevic and having her produce more, hopefully than she did on, <laughs> on Sunday, that'll help too. Uh, and really... It's all about what this team is going to be and the obstacles that they're going to have to overcome come the middle middle of July. And, you know, I kind of was joking around when you brought up the fact that players are going to be departing in a few weeks and those struggles will begin. You look at the tools that Mark Parsons is going to have to tackle that end-of-season challenge. And then you also look at the, the decent team that is left behind that they should expect to not fall away from the pack during that time. This team still remains as talented as anybody, and it's it's less about talent than just trying to get that talent to perform at North Carolina's level. Because when you go player by player, you don't look at Merritt Matthias from North Carolina and say, wow, she's so talented. You don't look at Denise O'Sullivan and say that. I mean, when you go player for player, you just marvel at how hard they play, how well they play together, the identity they form, the way they execute that approach that they've developed over years. The Thorns have to use their talent to get to that level. It's not a matter of talent. It's about a matter of forming that identity. So I think that's part of the reason why the clean sheet was so encouraging. I mean, you and I heard it all preseason. 
the defense was in focus, trying to get that identity back. And I thought through one week, when the first shot on target doesn't come till the 92nd minute, mission accomplished. So I, I think there was a few players missing um, this weekend. Emily Menges and Midge Purse, both dealing with injuries. Haley Rosso uh, was actually back in Australia, I, I think, working out her work visa before she could rejoin the team. I don't know that we have any updates yet. Uh, the team did not come back to Portland this week. Uh, Mark Parsons is going to hold a conference call with the media later this week. Uh, so I don't really know if any of those players will be available this weekend. I, I think... Um, Mark had said Menges might be too soon for Chicago. He'd have to reevaluate that. Yeah. He thought Midge Purse was questionable for Orlando, so there's a potential that maybe she'd be back for Chicago. I, I don't know if you have any update on Rasso, but obviously she was back in Australia, and that's more has to do with figuring out the work visa. I have no update on Haley Rasso except for to know, you know, what she was doing down there, the timetable it was supposed to be on, and uh, right now she's it's kind of in this indefinite place. To, where when it's done, it's done, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I think kind of every week it's worth it's worth asking, is she back this week? Is she back this week? And at this point, we just don't know. Yeah, so hopefully we'll have more information on that later in this week uh, from Mark, uh, but unfortunately we don't have any today. But the Thorns will be heading to Chicago. That's why they stayed on the road instead of making the trip back uh, to Portland just to go back out to Chicago. Uh, they'll play Chicago on Saturday at 12.30 p.m. Uh, before the Timbers. It'll be a big day of soccer. Uh, yeah, <laughs> jeez, and yeah. So for people that don't know, twelve thirty kickoff in Chicago. What is it? A three four thirty four thirty kickoff in Columbus. Yes, and then there's a six. Is it six o'clock kickoff? No, no, it's seven thirty kickoff or and Merlot for T two. So <laughs> get all your soccer in on Saturday. And for some people uh, who are devoted Pilots followers, they're going to be going to the men's scrimmage against. I believe it's Oregon State at eleven o'clock that day. I. I don't go to pilot scrimmages, but for the people that do, uh, it's going to be a, a long and hopefully fulfilling day for you, but it's going to be a little bit longer than my day would be. <laughs> um, but looking at this game, Chicago opened the season with a 1-1 draw over, as you were just talking about, the North Carolina Courage, mm-hmm. the fearsome North Carolina Courage. Um, what did you kind of take away from that game, and what do you think are going to be the keys for the Thorns in this one? Yeah, I mean, that game, to me, was the typical North Carolina game when you're playing them on the road. You're going to deal with a lot of pressure. They're going to put a lot of shots up against you. They're going to want to play a fast-paced game, and the fact that Sam Kerr was able to score early in that only played into that dynamic. Really good point for Chicago. Uh, it was interesting having to sit there for about 40 minutes of that game, wondering if North Carolina was going to suffer as many losses after one week as they did through 24 <laughs> weeks last year. I guess 26 weeks, really when you think about it. Uh, but I think it, it just goes to show you that when people watch the North Carolina Courage, there is always this feeling that they're so overwhelming. But as we've seen through t- Thorns games against them, as we saw in the Thorns opener last year against them where they gave up over 30 shots, but not very many of them are dangerous, ended up being one nothing at the end. North Carolina plays a style that can look like you don't want to play against it, but you can still get their, your opportunities against them. Chicago's always played North Carolina well, so I don't know if this portends as to how the Thorns are going to be able to match <laughs> up against them. But the Thorns have always played the Red Star as well. I think, not to go on for too long here, Jamie, I'm sorry I already spoke for 60 seconds there, but when I think about this Red Stars team, they have two very distinct ways of playing. They have a lot of very technical players that, if anybody was at Providence Park for the, for, for the semifinal they played against North Carolina last year, their technical quality was off the charts. All of these quick, short passes that were moving North Carolina players out of position, taking advantage of their aggression. But they also have this quality in them where Julie Ertz will just go around and run people into the ground. They can be physical. They can grind it out. They have that mentality that's been built up over the years, too. 
Now the question is, Chicago has had injury concerns to uh, one of their best ball-playing midfielders, Daniel Colaprico. Vanessa DiBernardo, maybe their best attacking midfielder, hasn't played much. Morgan Bryan dealing with injuries. Their star fullback, Casey Short, dealing with injuries. Which of the teams are we going to see in Chicago on Saturday? Is it going to be the grind it out, make things ugly? Or is it going to be the team that loves to play the short passes, run, get into space, play very positional soccer? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely a question. I think the other thing that has to be key when you're talking about Chicago is, are the Thorns going to be able to contain Sam Kerr? Uh, because Ooh. I think... <laughs> yeah, Sam Kerr. Uh, she's this player, pretty good. Sam Kerr sounds like a 1911 shortstop for the Cincinnati Red Stockings. <laughs> hey, just see Sam Kerr out there picking it? <laughs> picking it and flinging it. That is a really interesting reference that just came to your mind. No, I mean, Sam Kerr, finalist for MVP last year, won the MVP the year before, won the Golden Boot last year. She scored Chicago's only goal in this Courage game. Um, I think the biggest key to any game against Chicago is whether you can contain Sam Kerr. Yeah, and they do have other people who can hurt you, but even then, it's usually a function of Sam Kerr. Yeah. Um, you know, in this part of the world, when you talk to coaches, assistant coaches for other teams, or people who just follow all the games, it's just automatic. Even the players, this is the best player in the world. People in Europe don't like it when you say that because it makes it seem like you're ignoring like Pernelli Harder or Lincoln Martins over there. And there are a lot of good players over there. But the best player in the world conversation starts with Sam Kerr. And at least in terms of her physicality and the menace she brings on your back line, she is the most imposing matchup in the world. So you've got a Thorns defense that is prioritizing clean sheets, got their clean sheet relatively easily. They dealt with Alex Morgan, who physically is just as much of a challenge as Sam Kerr and Emily Megas might not be back. So you're dealing, you have Emily Sonnet, Catherine Reynolds, who I thought played very well. Megan Klingenberg, Ellie Carpenter. Are they going to be as successful containing Sam Kerr as they were Alex Morgan and Marta? Maybe, maybe Maybe. not. (laughs) I, I think the, I think the thing to stress is like you said, First thing that comes up to your mind about Chicago, Sam Kerr. We don't talk about Orlando like that, even though Alex Morgan is more famous than Sam Kerr. Martha is more famous than Sam Kerr. They're not on the same level as Sam Kerr. Sam Kerr is not on their level commercially. (laughs) But those two players, as good as they are, and Alex Morgan is a great player. Martha is a great player. There is an upper echelon of player in the world that Sam Kerr occupies with a couple other people. And Alex Morgan and Martha are not there. And that's the challenge that the Thorns are going to be dealing with this weekend. Um, so kind of moving on to some other things, you know, they were, like you said, they're staying on the road this week. It's their second of six games to open the season on the road. The difference here is they are staying on the road this time. Interesting note, all of their games are in the Eastern time zone. You've got potential short tips to Tacoma and Sandy, Utah that they could have made. Those are backloaded to the end of the season. (laughs) I think at the end of June, the Thorns will play in Houston. And at that point, they never have to go east of the mountain time zone again. For the whole last three months of the season. <laughs> so not only is this an opening stretch that takes them away from home and they won't have a home game until June 2nd, it's all of their longest road trips altogether. Yeah. Either way, uh, will staying on the road, do you think it'll help this week? Do you think it doesn't matter? Do you think it'll hurt them being away from Portland for that long? I think it helps. I, I don't know how much it helps or how big of a difference it makes, but I think overall it helps. I, I think they're doing this, if, if I'm right, for a, a stretch of two and then a stretch of two again. Um, mm. So I, I think they're going to do this twice in the, the six-game road trip on the on the road. Um, 
I think it helps because I, I think you just have to try to, to limit those miles. I, I mean, these players fly commercial. They have to deal with the annoyances of, uh, you know, not much leg room, which I think is much worse for a professional soccer player than it can possibly be for any of us uh, when you're trying to prepare for a game. Uh, things like that. I, I think it helps to just stay on the road, um, not worry about coming all the way back just to go back out again. And I think it's smart how the Thorns are approaching this. I don't know if it'll make a huge difference, but I think it's the best decision. Early in the season, I think it's good for the team to get be together, especially since they haven't been together for that long during the preseason. Other than that, I, I think it probably doesn't matter. But I think I think it is important to build that cohesion. Um, Jamie, you have this question down here in the notes. I'm not happy with it. <laughs> I'm just going to say it to you. How important is it for the Thorns to get points now before the national team players leave? I want you to answer that question, but I also want to tell you, the games now are worth three points just like the games at the end of the season. So go ahead. Defend your life choices by putting this on this piece of paper. <laughs> well, uh, I will say that the U.S. Women's National Team players and Christine Sinclair um, are going to leave after game three. Sinclair would have stayed longer if the Thorns didn't have a bye in week four. Um, so both they'll be gone after uh, third game of the season. Australians will leave after the fifth game. I think it is important to try to make the most of this. They have the some of the best players in the world on the field right now. They are clearly informed. They're gearing up for the World Cup. And if, if the performance against Orlando is any indication, that they're in a good spot right now. The Thorns are, like you said, are decently prepared to deal with the World Cup. But they're a much better team, clearly, with their full lineup there. And I think they have the potential to pick up a lot of points right now. And yeah, I think that is important for them to take advantage of because I think they're one of the best teams at full strength. The Thorns are one of the best teams in the NWSL. At partial strength, we're going to see where they fit into the NWSL. I don't think they're going to fall to the bottom, but I don't know if they're still going to be one of the best teams during that stretch. Do the other teams get to keep their players? I said, I just explained that. The Thorns, I think, right now at full strength are one of the best teams in the NWSL. The Thorns versus every other team not at full strength. I don't know where the Thorns are going to average out in that mix. Are these games during the World Cup, they're worth more points then? Look, I mean, I posted this to Twitter last week. When players started returning to the Thorns, and honestly, it's only in this market that this is this much of an issue. When the players started returning to the Thorns in 2015, they were 4-4-4, four, four, and four, and they lost their next three games. They were 4-7-4 four, four at that time, but at the same time, Kansas City, who won the league, was 4-6-4. Four, this season isn't going to be defined by this World Cup stretch. It's going to define the obstacles, and then teams will respond. Last time, Kansas City responded by not losing a game the rest of the way once they got their players back. The Thorns responded like a team that didn't really have an identity. And, the, and some of those players came back injured and didn't come into the lineup. So even though they were back, they weren't really back. So look, I, I obviously am unsettled by every Thorns conversation having to go in this direction. And at the same time, it's something that we should talk about. But at some point, we're just talking about the same thing over and over again. And as uncomfortable I was at the beginning of the show by talking about a Timbers world where not a lot is changing. Well, it's the same thing here. Like, we know what the challenge is going to be. There's no reason that the team, any team in this league is going to have that, their season defined by this challenge. And yeah, that's, it just is what it is. Okay, let's go to listener questions. <laughs> I feel like you, we have one listener question from Don on Thorns, and I feel like you're going to similarly not have a... Oh, really? Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> I um, want to talk about it. Okay, let's, let's, let's do it then. Donna, want something controversial? Your thoughts on Morgan's retweet seeing Clang Falter and calling out an NWSL refs to be better. Then Soccer Girl Problems retweeted it supporting Alex Morgan. Surprise, somebody, someone of Alex Morgan's stature went to Twitter about that. Is there something bigger going on? 
Ooh, that's conspiratorial. <laughs> Something bigger going on. Yeah, I, I think Alex Morgan was just upset that she got fouled and the, the ref didn't notice. I really didn't bother. I, I was actually surprised by the amount of interest there was on Twitter about this. I, it doesn't didn't bother me that a player went out of her way to really retweet something. I, I mean, I feel like players often do that when there's a there's a video out there. I think, um, what was it, Julio Cascante, I think, may have put the Instagram thing of Zlatan on, or somewhat, one of oh. the Timbers for sure, when Zlatan was pulling down Julio Cascante. Mm. Um, that that made it on social media. Yeah, it does media feel kind of common account. for players to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. For, for me, it feels common. I think when Alex Morgan tweets anything, it's a bigger deal because of her stature to some degree. But yeah. I think she's allowed to be frustrated about saying. I mean, I mean, I don't think she's necessarily saying that um, that Orlando deserved to win or anything like that. But I, there's been issues in other years about the refereeing in the NWSL, and if she has a problem there and wants to call it out, I'm all for it. I have no problem with what Alex Morgan did. I have no problem with her responding to that. I have no problem saying like she got fouled or calling for the NWSL refs to be better because that happens in every sport. What doesn't happen in every sport is the fan culture acting like these players are so far above being fouled or having normal things that happen in the normal course of events happen to them, acting like it's a personal safety issue. Alex Morgan was not in danger of being hurt by that. I'm sorry, like pretending that this was like some huge risk to Alex Morgan's ability to make money going forward, ability to have a professional career. Calm down. Calm down just like I should calm down right now. <laughs> but also, there is this huge culture around the players in Orlando. I'm just going to say it, what we're all thinking or what everybody else thinks outside of Orlando. There's not a huge culture, but there's this culture around the players in Orlando that oh, you can't say anything bad about Ashlyn Harris. You can't say anything bad about Ali Krieger. You can't say anything bad about Alex Morgan. Well, as you kind of know from being on the show, I'm not somebody that goes out of my way to say bad things about players. I tend to try to see the silver linings in them and what they can do as opposed to what they can't. These players don't need you to coddle them like that. They're all players that have well-established international careers and have had has been criticized and survived that criticism. They're frankly more mature than most of the people that are on Twitter and people acting like you can't say anything about them is ridiculous. And part of the reason it's ridiculous is because you have a player retweeting one of her fans, calling for action on the ref's part, action that I agree with. I think the ref should be better. I think that was a foul, what she's complaining about. But then blowing that up into some kind of like it's some referee defining, league defining incident. Come on. Yeah. Let's stop being so precious about this. And let's stop being so precious about it just in women's soccer. If you talk about that regarding MLS, Premier League, whatever league's your choice, fine. That's who you are. I personally don't see that. I see the dialogue around the NWSL as being just so much more precious. I'm tired of it. It's this double it's a double standard that we shouldn't have to ignore or pretend like it doesn't exist. So that's Donna. If you wanted something to come from your question that has a little bit of fire behind it, I'm just going to say what a lot of people think. There are some players that get treated as if they're just so incredibly precious. I'll go a step further. Tobin Heath gets treated this way too. Tobin Heath has a lot of fans and she's earned them all with her play on the field. But there's a segment of those fans that feel like nobody should ever go in for a tackle on Tobin Heath. Now, there are health issues that tie into that. But there are a lot of players within the women's national team specifically where you you can't treat them like normal soccer players. It's not only hands off on the field, it's words off off the field, too. So for me, it's not like you said, it's not about Alex, Alex Morgan. It's about the conversation around her. All right, I think let's move on. <laughs> I'm going to cut that. <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to predictions. Uh, 
Actually, you should have probably put these in the opposite order. So let's go in the order, actually, of the games that they are happening. Right. Uh, Thorns at Chicago Red Stars. That'll be the first game on Saturday. I'm going to go with a 1-0 win. <gasps> Four. For the Thorns. It's not 2-1. You didn't say 2-1. not 2-1. Oh but but, but, I, but I, I guess I, I also kind of stuck with, you'll see. Yeah. Similar score lines in well, both games. Yeah. I... I'm happy, even though I'm obviously being too hard on you for the bit regarding 2-1. But uh, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that ties into what I'm going to say here. You know, earlier in the show, I said there are two different versions of the Red Stars. There's this stylistic one that has this great technical ability, and then there's the grind, grind it out. I think this is going to go grind it out. I don't know who's going to win this game. If you ask me to predict this, I, I don't know. I think it could go 1-0 one, one way, 1-0 one, the other, 0-0 nil, nil another. The Thorns have historically done pretty well here. But in this particular game, I'm going to say there's going to be less than two goals. That's my prediction. All right. And Timbers at Columbus is uh, <laughs> it's going to be the week that the Timbers turn it around. I'm saying no. <laughs> what a shock. Oh, is, is JVB Goldberg predicting against the Timbers again? I haven't predicted against the Timbers in all of the weeks. I didn't no. against San Jose. Against and, San Jose. Uh, <laughs> or Cincinnati. You yeah, or Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Um, yeah. It's almost as I'm, I'm just saying things here. Yeah. yeah. They don't actually <laughs> correspond to real life at all. But I am going to go with the 1-0 loss here. So flipping, what flipping happened? the... What happened to get 1-0? You've been watching baseball again. <laughs> Maybe. Um, no, and again, tying back into something that I mentioned at the beginning of the show... Columbus has scored a lot of goals this year off set pieces. The Timbers are having trouble scoring goals right now. And against a good Columbus team, I think that's going to continue. I honestly don't know who's going to win this game because Columbus has played their game so close this year that if the Timbers convert off a corner kick early, this this game is going to have a dynamic to where through their first month and a half in the season, Columbus hasn't shown they can respond to that yet. I believe they will eventually show that. But to this point, they've got that chapter of their book unwritten. So... I'm just going to say the winning goal in this game is going to come off a set piece. I, I just don't see either of these two teams having a lot of success in open play right now. All right. Uh, so that, that brings us to the fantasy update. Uh, in third place, we have Wook score more goals. That's Robert. We have second place, Mateo FC. That's Matt. And in first place, we still have Real Alisco, that's Alex. You're getting so close. That's awesome. <laughs> Seriously, like every week you're getting closer to Alex's team name. That's amazing. Oh, I mean. <laughs> no, it seems, it seems like. Now you're, I feel like my I'm just so far off. You're not. You're not. Because if we went back and listened to the first time, uh, I'm not going to say that name out loud because I'll, be, I'll show it to you. Because I did say it out loud the first time. And you have been inching forward. And you're like right there. It's amazing. What are Wooks? Wooks score more goals. You didn't ask? No. You're a reporter. <laughs> All right, Robert, if you could tweet at either the show account or one of us and tell us what wooks are, uh, the next time you're in the top three, we will explain that to our listening world. Maybe. <laughs> it, it can't be dirty. Um, all right, that's all for this week. Uh, we're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Oregon Live, uh, Stumptown Footy, and Timbers.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs> <laughs>